right, well, I'm going to go ahead and read the text. Uh, we will pray, and then we'll begin with the word of God. It says, verse 7, And he began speaking a parable to the invited guests when he noticed how they had been picking out the places of honor at the table, saying to them, verse 8, When you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor, for someone more distinguished than you may have been invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, Give your place to this man. And then in disgrace you proceed to occupy the last place. But when you are invited, go and recline at the last place, so that when the one who invited you comes, he may say to you, Friend, move up higher. Then you will have honor in the sight of all those who are at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Verse 12, And he went on to say to the one who had invited him, When you give a dinner, or you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors. Otherwise, they may invite you in return, and that will be your, your repayment. But when you give a reception, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. And you will be blessed, since they do not have a means to repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Let's pray. Father, we're so glad to assemble as your people to be addressed by your word. Your word, Father, is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. In fact, your word is the person of your Son, the Word who was in the beginning, who was with God and who was God. And in Him was light, and the light was the life of men. And Father, truly your Word is our life. Because it's not just pages or words on a page or, or, or inert syllables, but through this Word, your very presence is communicated to us. And so, Father, we ask that as we hear your word preached, our hearts would be open to receive not only information, but your own self, that we would be fed, that we would be nourished. Lord, I know, we know that we all come in here with various things on our heart, various issues that either were the joy of our week or the sorrow of our week. But, Father, we ask that now your word would speak to us and address those things. We need to hear your voice, Lord. We need to know which way we should go. We need to, we need to be guided. We're like sheep who all have gone astray, and we need the chief shepherd to direct us. So we give our attention and time to you. Lord, we ask that you would fill this place with your spirit. Fill our hearts with your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right. Well, good morning, everybody. It is I. Um, I know I cut my hair, but it is I. Um, all right, well, this morning, after a long break, we're returning um, to our series in the Gospel of Luke. We pick up the story with Jesus being invited to a banquet. Verse 1 reads, It happened that when he went into the house of the leader of one of the leaders of the Pharisees on Sabbath to eat bread. Now, 
This was quite a common affair in those days. After the synagogue gathering, something like what we would be doing this morning, the Pharisees and the religious officials would retire to someone's home for a lavish meal. It sounds pretty nice, but they made one mistake. They invited Jesus. And as we will see, he has a mouthful for them. And it's not the banquet itself that Jesus takes exception with. We know that he often frequented parties with all the wrong people. Rather, Jesus takes exception with the particular customs of their party. Both the hosts and both both the host and the guests, excuse me, were to be blamed. Bottom line, the banquet was all about themselves to the disadvantage or to the detriment rather of the disadvantage. The religious leaders Uh, lives who ought to reflect God's radical hospitality to the poor demonstrated just the opposite. And so Jesus' words directly apply to the ancient Near East system of patronage, but we'll see how they apply to virtually every area of our lives. Here, we too are obligated to translate God's free love for us into our free love others. So, the initial occasion for Jesus's rebuke was the arrogance of the banquet guests. Look at verse 7. It says, he began speaking to them um, when he noticed how they had been picking out the places of honor at the table. In that culture, the closer one sat to the host, the more honored and dignified they were. And so one by one, the guests elbowed their way to the front, and Jesus watched on. And what the guests were after, the passage tells us, was honor. Taking the most prominent places for themselves, they wanted the recognition and the affirmation of their peers. However, although the, inv- uh, although the invited guests reek of narcissism, it must be said that the desire for honor, the desire to be honored, is not inherently wrong. In fact, it is a basic human need. Honor is connected with notions like dignity and worth. A person or a place or a thing is honored because it possesses inherent value. And in that sense, every single one of us needs to feel respected and appreciated and honored. No one can live without those basic human needs. That is why the scripture tells us to honor father and mother, for husbands to honor their wives as fellow heirs to the grace of life, and quite simply, to honor everyone. So though we might laugh at the guests' shameless self-promotion, pushing themselves to the front, we can relate a little bit. The problem, therefore, is not our desire for honor, but whom we seek it from, one another. How can you believe, Jesus said to the crowds, when you receive honor from one another and do not seek the honor that comes 
from the only God. So the guests, jabbing and prodding their way into the limelight, like those whom Jesus spoke to, sought their honor in the opinions and the judgments of others. In them, we see a reflection of ourselves. That we too, to one extent or another, find our value in the estimation and the opinion of others. Subtly changing our personality, slightly altering our behavior, or switching our wardrobe, all to be seen and recognized by those around us, to seek and curry their favor. Now, the majority of guests at the banquet were Pharisees, and they, we know, were exceptionally notorious for this, seeking honor among their peers. Later on in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus will warn his disciples about them, saying, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes, and love respectful greetings in the marketplaces, and chief seats in the synagogues, and places of honor at the banquets. So there they are, walking through the streets with their long robes designed to be seen, going to the most crowded place in the uh, crowded part of the marketplace to receive the respectful greetings, uh, deliberately coming in late to seat themselves in the front of the synagogue and at the banquets. So Jesus indicts them on four accounts, which are really one account, exploiting their position and authority as a means to gain honor from others. And this, seeking honor among our peers, is disastrous in that it inevitably leads to self-promotion. Right When we are seeking honor among one another, or seeking to be honored by one another, it leads to self-promotion. Listen to these insightful remarks from C.S. Lewis. He says, Pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next man. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good-looking, but they are not. They are proud of being richer or cleverer or better-looking than others. If everyone else became equally rich or clever or good-looking, there would be nothing to be proud about. It is the comparison that makes you proud, the pleasure of being above the rest. So, if honor, therefore, is derived from comparison to others, in putting oneself above them, it inescapably leads to competition. The only way to gain honor is to assert your worth over and against others, to take the place of honor for yourself, to be more successful than the other guy, to be better looking than her, etc., etc. It puts us in competition with one another. Now this, of course, could not be further away from Jesus. In response to their self-aggrandizement, he spins a parable. Verse 8, When you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor. For someone more distinguished than you may have been invited by him, and he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this man, and then in disgrace you proceed to occupy the last place. But 
when you are invited, go and recline at the last place, so that when he, so that when the one who has invited you comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher, and you will have honor in the sight of all who are at the table with you. Now, at first glance, it's not too difficult to determine what Jesus means. Pursuing one's honor, exalting oneself, will ultimately lead to disgrace. The person who goes and seats themselves up in the front will be displaced by someone more honorable, and then they'll have to, in the presence of everybody, walk all the way to the back and sit down in shame. The better course of action, Jesus counsels, is to instead pursue humility. Go seat yourself at the back and leave the matter of your honor up to someone else. Leave that to others. As the scripture says, Proverbs twenty nine twenty three, a man's pride will bring him low, but a humble spirit will obtain honor. We see that in Jesus' parable. The one who exalts himself is humbled, and the one who humbles himself is exalted. But I believe there is another dimension to Jesus' parable. In his instruction to, to us to choose the last place rather than the place of honor, we find resemblance to his own life. We find a resemblance to Jesus Christ himself. Because our Lord, we're well aware, did not come to occupy the place of honor. He did not come to earth to be served, but instead he took the last place. He, come, he came to us to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. As the Apostle Paul says in Philippians chapter, five, chapter 2, rather, verses 5 and 8, Jesus Christ, who, listen to this, although he existed in the form of God, what does that mean? It says he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. There it is, a clear assertion of Jesus' equality with God the Father. It says, although he existed in the form of God, it says he emptied himself taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So far from asserting his dignity, coming and taking the honorable place for himself, Jesus willingly set his own dignity aside. As the passage says, he emptied himself. The Son of God, who is God, became like one of us, laying aside all claims to superiority and power. Instead, he humbled himself. The passage says, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. But Paul continues and says, for this reason, because Jesus took the last place, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow. Like the person who is brought from the last place to the place of honor in the parable, so Jesus himself was brought from the very depths of crucifixion to sit at the right hand of the Almighty. Everyone who exalts himself 
will be humbled. And everyone who humbles himself will be exalted. There it is in the life of Jesus Christ himself. And what I want to point out where this begins to have an impact for us other than our worship of the Lord is that in Jesus' example, our notions of honor, of what it means to be an honorable person, what it means to be regarded as honorable in the eyes of others are completely redefined. That definition is turned on its head. Because to humanize the crucifixion of Jesus... If you can picture this, a man pierced to a cross, beaten to a pulp, mocked, spit on, his clothes being gambled for beneath his feet, to our eyes, that is the most dishonorable and imaginable. It literally couldn't be any worse. But in God's eyes, that very same event, what to us looks so grotesque and ugly, in God's eyes... That's the very apex of honor. That's the height of Jesus' honor. Why? Because true honor is not found in asserting one's place above others, vying for the place of honor, but in giving one's place to others, in taking the last place. That is why the cross is Jesus' honor, because there he is in the most selfless act There ever was or ever will be. So honor is, as the Apostle Paul says, it's found in regarding one another, regarding others as more important than yourselves. So you see then how Jesus' redefinition of honor in the cross, in his life, in that parable, um, it destroys this hierarchy of honor. Each person trying to compete to assert their honor above the other. The culture of one-upmanship and competition is replaced by a culture of mutual deference and humility. As St. Paul instructed the church at Rome, Romans chapter 12, verse 10, he says, Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. He says then this, Give preference to one another in honor. Give preference to one another in honor. Now, translators have a hard time with that phrase, give preference to one another. The Greek word either means to put above, as in put them above you, give preference to them, or it can mean to do exceedingly, so to do with all your might. Hence, in some translations, particularly the older ones, it reads, outdo one another in showing honor. And if that translation is correct, and I think it's most likely right, rather than putting us in competition with one another, each to secure his own honor, the Apostle Paul inverts the formula. And he puts us in competition to outdo one another, not in securing our own honor, but the honor of the other. Outdo one another in showing honor. So rather than like the people at the banquet asserting themselves, trying to climb to the top of the rank, We're doing the exact opposite. It is no longer a race to the front to honor myself, but a race to the back that I may honor you, that I might lift you up, that I might bring you honor. So if this is the case, if each one is falling over themselves to show preference to the other, 
One does not feel slighted in being given the last place, of being asked to do a hard job, of being asked to humble yourself. You don't feel slighted. And one does not become, be, become conceited in being given the place of honor. There is equality of honor and worth among us. So you see how our Lord's example demolishes rank and status, one being superior or above another in dignity. Rather, in Him, quite simply, we are all one. And this, this vision, which is certainly in place in our church, but I think we all know we can always do better in showing preference to the other in honor, in serving each other more, this vision, this goal can be made possible when we cease from seeking honor from one another and we begin to seek honor from God. We begin to seek honor in God's eyes. Because when one begins to find their sense of dignity and value, not in the opinions of others, but in God, then they can be content to assume the last place. This calls to mind Jesus' words in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 6, verses 2 and 4, he says, So when you give to the poor... Do not sound the trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, so that they may be honored by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. But when you give to the poor, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving will be in secret, and your Father who sees what what is done in secret will reward you. So, one who's... A primary point of reference is the regard and opinion of others will inevitably corrupt their religion, as the hypocrites Jesus mentions. Their generosity is neither for God or for the poor, but for themselves. They give, Jesus says, that they might be honored by men. They sound the trumpet before them. Thus, with the honor of men as their object seeking to gain their favor, all their good deeds must be attended with fanfare and acclamation. They have to be seen. They have to be regarded. They have to be told how righteous they are. But on the other hand, one whose primary point of reference is the honor that comes from God, they are content with hiddenness and obscurity. They don't have to be front and center in the limelight. In fact, they prefer hiddenness because the good deed done in secret is done only to please one, and that is God. A a deed done in secret is not for anyone else, not for you. It's ultimately for the Lord. And so those who flaunt their good deeds for all to be seen, they have their reward. The reward is that they're seen. But the one who works in hiddenness Their reward is from God. So you see how when we begin to regard God as the primary point of reference, as the one whom we seek our honor from, it enables us then to say, okay, I can humble myself beneath you. I don't have to be superior. I don't have to have my ego offended when someone slights me. Because my concern is not the judgment of men, but the judgment of God. But Jesus' rebuke is not done. 
His first order of business was to correct the vain party-goers. His second order of business is to correct the host. Verse 12 and 13, he says, And he also went on to say to the one who invited him, When you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors. Otherwise, they may also invite you in return, and that will be your repayment. The object of Jesus' rebuke is reciprocity. The idea that if I do this for you, then you'll do this in return for me. So reading between the lines, Jesus knows that the Pharisee who hosted the party did so to ingratiate himself with those who he invited. In other words, in inviting the prominent men, right, in inviting all the community leaders, the host was hoping to win their good favor. Now in that culture, if one wanted to gain influence and opportunity for themselves, a banquet was the way to do it. Because if you invite them and throw a lavish party, well, they're going to invite you and, 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 and return the mutual benefit, and, and that's his reward. You're in. And that's what Jesus takes exception with, this reciprocity going on. Now, on the surface, inviting one's relatives and friends and family, or excuse me, and, and uh, wealthy neighbors to a party seems rather harmless, right? We do it all the time. And in a sense, it is harmless. Reciprocity, it seems, is the basis of all human relations. There needs to be a give and take. There needs to be a mutual back and forth. A relationship that's entirely one-sided, with one person putting in the bulk of the work and effort, will eventually collapse. Being creatures... Our patience and our endurance is limited. We cannot escape this. Eventually, love must be reciprocated. What we put in must be returned to us. What sustains a marriage or a friendship or a community is the more or less equal cooperation and investment of all parties involved. Reciprocity, putting in and taking out, is woven into the very fabric of our nature. So there's a sense in which it's harmless, but that that said, there is also a darker side to reciprocity. Think about this. If the basis of our relationships is reciprocity, you give to me, I give to you, then inevitably we will seek those who can give us the best return on our investment. Clearly, the host knew what he was doing when he put together his guest list. He very deliberately invited a certain type of people because they could give him a return on his investment. Now take as an example of this um, the, the awkward and painful process of making friends on the first day of school. Some of you can remember that far back. The kids who come from good homes, who have been socialized, who have been taught well, they naturally gravitate toward one another. Why? Because they all have something to contribute. The give and take, the mutual back and forth between the kids knits them into a group of friends. But more often than not, it's quite different, it's quite a different story rather for the kids who come from a different background. 
coming from bad homes. They have less to contribute, and as a result, they often have a harder time making friends. They don't contribute as much to the whole as the other kids. And so they find themselves on the outside of this cycle of reciprocity. And again, this is simply how reciprocity works. It serves to create boundary lines. Those who have something to contribute are in, and those who have nothing to contribute are out. Think about this on just a wider societal level. Those who are productive members of society increase by what they give into society. There's a give and take, but those maybe for no fault of their own, who are crippled and whatever it may be, some sort of disability, they have nothing to contribute and therefore they're naturally out. So those who have are given more and those who lack, even what they have is taken from them. Thus the host filled his house with powerful and wealthy men and not the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. He seeks a return on his investment. So, you see what Jesus is taking aim at. But here, listen, he offers a better way. Look at verses 13 and 14. But when you give a reception, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed, since they do not have the means to repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Once again, I believe we can see shades of Jesus' life in these words. Invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. We see shades of his life because his love for us is non-reciprocal in the truest sense of the word. When we read this passage, we should see that we are the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. And Jesus is the host who invites us to his reception. And we are there, not because we have anything to offer him in return, but simply because his invitation is free. No strings attached. So let us be clear. The Son of God did not come to earth to receive anything from us, but simply to give. In him there is no hunger that needs to be filled, only a superabundant desire to give. Our relationship to God is like, to use an illustration from C.S. Lewis, our relationship, to God, our relationship to God is like a parasite to its host. God, as it were, is the host who deliberately creates his own parasites, bringing us into existence that we may exploit and take advantage off of him having nothing to offer but merely to take life from the host. Only God loves this way. He alone can give and give and give and give still further without a return on his investment. Without him finally saying, what do you have to offer me? Only God can love that way. In this is love, says the Apostle John, not that we loved God, Not that we reached out to him, but that he loved us, that he reached out to us. And so, it is this non-reciprocal, utterly free love that we are called to emulate. That is, as Christians, we are obligated to move beyond merely 
loving those who love us, or caring for those who care for us, or involving ourselves with those who involve us. As we've said, that type of reciprocal love is fine. It's not altogether forbidden, but we must note it's merely human. If you love those who love you, Jesus says, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. Reciprocal love is normal. There's nothing extraordinary or exceptional about it. And in fact, it bears no resemblance to the love which is God. God loves purely non-reciprocally, giving, 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 and us not giving anything in return. Now, a distinctly Christian love, as opposed to merely a human one, is one which concerns itself with the destitute, those who can offer nothing in return. That's why this passage is so important, because in Jesus' instructions about how to host a party, we find out what God is like and essentially what we should be like. Only this type of love for the destitute, only this type of love begins to reflect God's love. And really, the presence or absence of this love is a test case for our church. Our conformity to the way of Jesus Christ is demonstrated to the degree that our love is for the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. There's nothing really exceptional about us loving one another. Families that are not Christian love each other. Other groups that are not Christians love each other. That's not anything truly stand out about that. That's normal. What marks us as distinctly Christian is love for those who can give nothing in return. John Newton, the man who penned the hymn Amazing Grace, commented on our passage, commenting on our passage rather, and he said, one would almost think that Luke chapter 14 verses 12 through 14 was not considered part of God's word, nor any part of Jesus' teaching has been neglected more by his own people. I do not think it is unlawful to entertain our friends, but if these words do not teach us that is that it is in some respects our duty to give preference to the poor, I am at a loss to understand them. And Newton is right. God has freely loved us, the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. Thus, we are obligated to show preferential love to the same. And so allow me to ask, how might you and your family, indeed our entire church, hear these words and put them into practice? What might it look like to love non-reciprocally? I think back to Christmas 2019. The original plan, I hatched it early in the year, was to host a party for the church I had ideas that the food would be catered, that it would be decorated real fancy and nice, and we'd have a great time exchanging gifts and having games and whatever. But then I read this passage, or rather it came to mind, and it wouldn't leave my mind, and immediately I knew that we had to change plans, that it wouldn't be right to host a party for ourselves. And as it turns out, our Christmas party for the women at Pavilions, I think we would all agree, was far greater, was a far greater blessing than hosting something for ourselves and seeing the joy and, and, and the, the overwhelming thankfulness of such a small thing for those women. Indeed, as our Lord says, it is 
better to give than to receive. And so we'll wrap up our message by concluding with one last point. I've been saying that our love ought to be non-reciprocal, right? One-way street. But in reality, it is still reciprocal. The Lord knows our weakness, that we cannot love as He loves. Therefore, He promises to repay what the destitute cannot. As the scripture says, Proverbs 19.17, The one who is gracious to a poor man lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his good deed. So here, our supposed non-reciprocal generosity to the poor is in fact said to be alone to the Lord. So that when we're giving to people who can't give anything to us, we're in fact giving to the Lord himself. I think we hear echoes of Matthew 25 in Proverbs 19. So in truth, our love is never entirely free and uncoerced. The Lord keeps and watches over the poor. Thus, when we give to them, we give to him. And he promises to repay us. And it seems to be a great tragedy to miss out on the Lord's repayment. Let's go back and read what Jesus says. Verse 12, When you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors. Otherwise, they might invite you to return, and that will be your repayment. One gets the sense, reading those words, that Jesus does not value human reciprocity very much, at least in comparison to God's. He says, don't invite those who can invite you in return. Otherwise, that's all you're going to get back. The return on your investment will be so very small. Merely another party to go to that you don't really want to go to. Verse 13. But when you give a reception, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed since they do not have the means to repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Being repaid at the resurrection of the righteous, it seems, is a far greater reward. Of course it is. Our invitation is not going to be to our friend's kid's birthday party, but to a feast in the kingdom of God. One who invests in this age will receive a very small repayment indeed. But another who invests in the, in the age to come will receive the very riches of God. And so as we prepare now for the Lord's Supper, what an admonishment we have in this passage. We partake the Lord's Supper looking forward to the day when we will drink it with our Lord in the we will eat and drink rather with our Lord in the kingdom of God. We do so knowing that our attendance on that day will not be secured by our own good works, by some repayment that we offered to the Lord in order to receive an invitation, but rather by the grace of God. We are the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. And He has loved us freely.